Shalom and welcome to The Jewish Mind, where the growth of modernity meets the timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. I cannot count the amount of times that I sit with individuals who are baffled by the fact that regardless of how hard they try, how much effort they put into the perfect business plan, and how much Torah study and mitzvot they take upon themselves in order to receive God's financial blessings, and they still remain stuck under the roof and blockage of poverty. It literally seems like they simply do not have God's blessing for Parnassah, sustenance, God forbid. I sit before them time after time and pray for God to guide my words of advice so that they be able to turn the mystical and or practical key to unlock their blessings for wealth. There are times that the guidance I receive is to bring them down to earth to do the practical physical work rather than hide behind spiritual issues. Once a Mr. B in Cran Heights wrote to the Rebbe of blessed memory that his materials are consistently being stolen from his van and that he put a charity pushka, a mezuzah, a Torah, a Torah book in his car and the van is still being broken into. The Rebbe's responded, change the locks to the van. Yes, sometimes a rabbi's job is to pull a person back down to earth. Other times the guidance I receive is to speak of a commitment of Torah and mitzvot, whether it be Torah study, tefillin, or Shabbat. However, there are those times when it seems that this isn't an effort issue, neither of the physical or spiritual level. There seems to simply be a mazal issue of God's blessings being blocked from the recipient. Based on a mystical teaching of the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbat in 1966, we are going to explore how to turn the mystical key to unlocking extreme physical wealth in our lives. The first introduction is the opening verses of the second Torah portion that we read this week. If in my statutes you will walk and my commandments you will heed and you will do them and I will give you your reins in their time and it goes on to list other promises and I walk you upright. There is another verse in the Torah, one that we recite twice daily in our reading of the Shema, Hero Israel in the second portion of the Shema, which reads, and it will be, if heed, you will heed to my commandments which I command you, and I will give you your reins in their times. What is the difference between the two verses, in which the first begins with walking in God's statutes, and the second speaks only of heeding God's commandments? And the answer is that the verse in our Torah portion is an all-encompassing Torah portion, and these verses are further reaching, deeper, and more demanding of us, and in return, the rewards here are far more extreme than those of all the other verses that promise physical rewards. Let us therefore look deeper into the demands and the promises of these verses. The words, If in my statutes you will walk, carry deep mystical definitions. For starters, generally speaking, the word statutes refers to a specific category of commandments, those which of which we do not have any logical reasoning for, such as the commandment of the red cow, unlike the category of judgments, mishpatim, such as do not kill, etc., for which we have logical reasons. However, Rashi, Rav Shlomo Yitzchaki, tells us that in this verse, the word statutes 
cannot be referred to a specific category of commandments. For these words in the verse are immediately followed by the all-inclusive words of, And my commandments you will heed, meaning the 365 prohibitions, and you will do them, meaning the 248 commandments. Thus Rashi quotes our sages who define the words, If in my statutes you will walk, to mean, you will be amelim. Amelim means strenuously and diligently occupied in the study of Torah. This is the simple interpretation of the word bichokotai in our verse. Let us now focus on the mystical interpretation of this word. The Hebrew word bichokotai, removing the prefix be and the suffix tai, is mystically connected with the word chakuk, which means engraved. The Torah is made up of written letters, ink on parchment. However, the Ten Commandments were engraved into the two tablets. The difference between the two is that written letters are made up of two separate items, the ink which is imposed upon the parchment, while engraved letters are one, part and parcel, of the tablets themselves. What this means is that there is a person who studies Torah in which the Torah and the person remain two different items, as books on a shelf. Then there is the way the brain absorbs experimental knowledge. Experiential, I'm sorry, I meant to say experiential. In the book, in his book, The Evolution of the Brain, Dr. Joe Desponza gives the ex example of someone looking into getting a dog and reads up everything there is to know about Cocker Spaniels. The brain absorbs, stores, and creates new connections of all this knowledge. However, then there is the person who has a Cocker Spaniel, and the brain now is receiving experiential information. In mystical terms, there is when the Torah study remains data knowledge, in which the person and the Torah remain two separate items, connected as that of the ink's connection upon the parchment. However, then there is a Torah study in which through an entirely different approach, effort, and an experiential unity between the studier, the Torah, and the giver of the Torah becomes one, part and parcel of each other. This is the mystical interpretation of the demand of this verse. To be a malim in Torah study, to the point at which the Torah becomes engraved within us. Let us now move on to the next word in the phrase of the verse, Telechu, walk. In Jewish mysticism, the significance of walking versus standing is that walking denotes a mobility of growth, while standing denotes being stationary. Furthermore, in the perspective of Kabbalah and Hasidus, a steady growth of an evolving chain, where the present link of growth is connected to the previous link, and the last link is connected through all the links to the first link, this entire evolution of growth, as great as it may be, is still called standing and not true mobility. The definition of mobility in Kabbalah only refers to a leap in which both feet completely leave and disconnect from where they previously stood. When one is simply walking, then there is the one foot lifted off the ground moving forward. However, this is all taking place while the other foot is remaining in its original position. Metaphorically, this means that the person is still connected to his previous position and remains so throughout his entire growth. Let me say it this way. A person who has a bachelor's degree and is now pursuing a master's degree and then goes on to receive their doctorate, they are only evolving in the field that they already studied. 
Yes, of course, they are growing with new material, but in an old field of experience. However, when a person takes on a totally new field of study, completely disconnected to anything studied and experienced earlier, he is not just developing new neuron connections, links, and brain growth in a previously existing firing area of the brain. Rather, he is now moving to a completely new dimension of reality and experience. This is why the Talmud tells of Rabbi Zera, who was a master scholar in the studies of the Babylonian Talmud, he fasted extensively before he began his studies in the Jerusalem Talmud. Rabbi Zaira did so because his entire intellectual processing was programmed through the process of elimination methodology of the Babylonian Talmud, which is known in Kabbalah and Hasidus as the rebound light. This process was not a foundation, but actually a hindrance in becoming a student and master of the Jerusalem Talmud's direct approach, known in Kabbalah and Hasidus as the direct light. Thus, every additional day of studying the Babylonian Talmud strengthened and involved his being a scholar in these studies, and every previous day laid the foundation of his ever far-reaching growth within this specific study. However, when Rabbi Zerah embarked upon a total new study, which demanded of Rabbi Zerah to lift both feet off the ground of the Babylonian Talmud, and to then land his feet in a totally new unchartered area of experience for him in the Jerusalem Talmud. This is what Kabbalah and Hasidus called mobility. Thus, our verses demands of Torah study is A. Absolute strenuous and diligent study of Amalim. B. In a total experiential form of becoming one with what we are studying and C. To consistently push ourselves out of the comfort zone of only evolving the present box we are in and to jump fully into new boxes of unprecedented Torah wisdom. Don't run away from this ominous task yet. This lecture will turn this task into digestical, practical, bite-sized, true experiences of the verse's demands. However, first let us explore the promises. Our sages explain the physical promises of these verses to be of total miraculous nature. For example, concerning the promise of the verse, and the tree of the field will give forth its fruit, our sages explain that this is referring to non-fruit-bearing trees, which in the future will bear fruit. And concerning the words in the verse, I will give your rains in their time, our sages speak of rains that will grow the kernels of wheat to the size of kidneys. Thus, what we are seeing in our verses is that, unlike the verse in Deuteronomy, they are speaking not only of commandment observances, but A, of Torah study, B, they are speaking of an exponential effort, and C, in turn, are speaking of unprecedented promises of exponential physical wealth. Another introduction necessary for this lecture we already touched upon in our last lecture. This past Sunday was the anniversary of the passing of the great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, known as the Rashbi. The Rashbi was the author of some parts of the Holy Zohar and the compiler of the entire Zohar. And with this, the Rashbi laid down the foundation to the revelation of the hidden Torah, Kabbalah and Hasidus. Additionally, the Rashbi was an authoritative sage in the legal annals of Talmud and Halacha, Jewish law. Unlike the sages who either mastered the revealed Torah or the hidden Torah, the Rashbi mastered both. Additionally, 
Even among the sages who mastered both the revealed Torah and the hidden Torah, the Rashbi was unique in his living within the revelation of God's presence in the infinite light of the Torah. So much so that our sages say concerning the Rashbi that for him there was no destruction of the Holy Temple, meaning that the Rashbi lived within the absolute revelation of God which existed in the Holy Temple. I want to explain this phenomenon. Our sages tell us that from the day of destruction, God has no place in our world but for in the four cubits, which is a measurement of six feet, of Torah study. However, as in the Holy Temple, there were different levels of revelations of God's presence, as that of the courtyard, gallery, ulam, holy of holies. And not everyone was allowed into every area of the Holy Temple, to the point that only the high priest was allowed into, hold, into the Holy of Holies and only on Yom Kippur. What the teaching is saying concerning the Rashbi is his level of Torah study and unity with Torah took him into the Holy of Holies as the Torah lay in the Holy Ark receiving the revelation of God from between the two cherubim on top of the Holy Ark. One last introduction which we will fully explore in this lecture is the teaching of our sages that parnasa, earning a livelihood, parnasa, is greater than redemption. Our sages teach, and I quote, parnasa is greater than redemption, for of redemption it is said, the angel who redeems me, while of parnasa the verse states, God who pastures me, and you open your hand and sustain all living with will. Thus, for redemption, God sends a messenger, an angel, while Parnassa is directly from God's hands. Okay, let's go into the lecture. There are huge discussions in science concerning the effects of nurture versus nature, which explore what is encoded within us as an inheritance of nature's DNA long-term code as a species and nature's DNA short-term code inherited from our parents and grandparents versus that which is the effects of our environment on us. How would someone evolve if he were brought up in the different circumstances of social status, country, religion, versus how two siblings evolve differently being brought up in the same environment? This is the scientific quest. Now let us see the Kabbalistic and Hasidic quest of understanding nature versus nurture. Nature is mystically defined by the cycle of time that begins with Rosh Hashanah, the month of Tishrei, which commemorates God's creating the world. This cycle includes within it all the genetic coding that God imprinted within the nature of each and every creature, both celestial and terrestrial. To understand this on a mystical level, the, prophets, the process through which life is produced from the realm of oneness to the lower three-dimensional realm is through the number 12. The reason for this is that it takes 12 corner edges to create a three-dimensional box. Look around the room you are sitting in now and you will see four horizontal corner edges that define the ceiling. Four horizontal corner edges that define the floor. And four ver vertical corner edges that define the walls. However, there is no such thing as a corner edge in itself. Rather, each corner edge is only the outcome product of where two walls meet. This is the mystical secret called Yehudim, unifications, in which two emanations of divine attributes are brought together, unified to produce a sustenance flow for the lower world.
This is what you may have seen in Sephardic prayer books, which are most often based on Kabbalistic teachings, where there are the names of God of the different prayers written with one name of God written in small letters within another name of God written in large letters. Each name of God represents a different emanation of a divine attribute. The two names written together are the unification of these two emanations, with the larger letters name, lettered name being the dominant emanation of this specific union of names, creating a specific source of sustenance for our world. Now let us understand the Kabbalistic and Hasidic definition of the coding within the nature coding of creation. God in Genesis created a coding whose existence we see in the verse, and I quote you a verse in Genesis, and there was no man to work the soil, and a mist ascended from the earth and watered the entire surface of the ground, which took place before the nurturing powers of, now the Lord God took man and he placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. So what you see here is that even before there was man to work and irrigate the garden, God set up in nature a coating of giving forth a mist cloud which then shifts over on top of the earth and then comes down as rain. God then confirmed in a covenant with Noah after the flood that God would never break this coating. Let me read to you the covenant. I will establish my covenant with you and never again with all flesh be cut off by the flood waters and there will never again be a flood to destroy the earth and I will remember my covenant which is between me and between you and between every living creature among all flesh and the rainbow shall be in the cloud. This is the sign of the covenant that I have set up between myself and between all flesh that is on the earth. So God took a covenant never again to mess with the coding that He Himself implanted within nature. However, later in Exodus, when God took the Jewish people out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, and gave them the Torah and its commandments, God said that He has removed from us Nama Dechsufa, bread of shame, meaning unearned bread, and that now we would be able to earn our bread from God. What this means is that the genetic coding of nature runs of the kindness of God, unearned by mankind through their work. This is the, defi the mystical definition of bread of shame. It is only after God gave us the Torah and when in it, within it God gave us the power to earn our bread through, and it will be, if heed you will heed my commandments which I command you, and I will give you your reins in their times. Now we can earn our bread. That is bread of honor. Thus the mystical term nurture is not about the effect that our environment has upon us. Rather it refers to the effect that we have on our environment, the universe, through our actions. While nature myst mystically means only that which is naturally coded within the genetics of the universe. Let us get a little more technical on a mystical level of what nature versus nurture means. For this we will need to return to the Yehudim, unification of emanations. In all of creation there exists within each creature the exterior and the interior. We know this as simply body and soul, and on a deeper level as expression and essence. There is the essence of the soul that does not express itself outwardly. This is the interior of the soul. Then there is the faculties and attributes of the soul, which express themselves outwardly in, into our conscience. This is called the exterior of our soul. And so it is with every creature, including the divine emanations. Thus we have two layers of Yehudim, the unification of the exteriors and the emanations of the emanations, and the unification of the interiors of the emanations.
The difference between the two is whether the life sustenance brought about through the unification is only of the limited expressive nature of the emanations or if the life sustenance brought about through the unifications carries within it the infinite essence of the emanations. What God encoded in Genesis and then promised to Noah is the natural life sustenance of exterior unifications of the divine emanations. Interior unifications of the divine emanations can only happen through nurture, the effort and service of mankind to God. Thus we now understand the two different levels of parnasa that exist. There is the parnasa of the external unification and there is the parnasa earning a livelihood of the internal unifications. The Parnassa of the external unifications, which is the Parnassa of the universe's natural Rosh Hashanah cycle of Tishrei, is not greater than the redemption of redemptive Passover cycle of Nisan. However, the Parnassa of the internal unification is greater than the redemption of redemptive Passover cycle of Nisan. With this, we now have a clarity of all three layers that exist within creation. A. The Parnassa of the external unification, which is the Parnassa of the universe's natural Rosh Hashanah cycle of Tishrei. B. The redemption of the redemptive Passover cycle of Nisan. Miracles. C. The Parnassa of the internal unification brought about through the service of, and it will be if heed you will heed to my commandments which I command you, and I will give you your reins in their times. However, you will notice that for the third layer brought about through our service, I am not quoting the verse, I am quoting the verse of Deuteronomy and not the verses of our Torah portion, which reads, If in my statutes you will walk, and my commandments you will heed, and you will do them, and I will give you your reins in their time, dot, 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 and I will walk you upright. The reason for this is that in layer 3, we are still not speaking yet of the panosa of certain extreme wealth. Rather, extreme wealth here is an uncertainty. And we are simply speaking of that whatever level of sustenance we do receive should not be bred of shame. Thus, we must move forward now with our lecture and unearth what lies hidden in the verses of our Torah portion. There is an interesting verse that speaks of the two previously mentioned forms of parnasah, sustenance, livelihood, that of external unification and that of internal unification as being the difference in how Israel receives its reign and how the rest of the world receives its reign. Our sages state, the land of Israel, the Holy One, blessed be He, Himself irrigates, while the entire world is via a messenger. For the verse states, who gives rain upon the face of the land and sends water upon the face of outside places. This is the same concept of the verse stating, and I will give rains, referring to God Himself, beyond any names or emanations or angels. But God alone gives rain to the land of Israel. Thus we have the rains of Parnassah that is sent through a messenger, which is the rain of the external unification, and then there is the rain that God alone gives, which is the rain of Parnassah of the internal unification. Let us now dive deeper into the rains and parnasa that is brought about through our service to God, causing the internal unification.
We explained earlier that God has liberated us from the bread of shame by giving us the Torah to study and the commandments to observe, and thus we now earn our bread of honor from God. It stands to reason that within our bread of honor, it takes extreme measures to earn extreme wealth. This is the difference between the standard bread of honor in Deuteronomy of, and it will be if heed you will heed my commandments and I will give rain, and the bread of honor of our verses. Our verses demand not only Torah study, but strenuous, diligent Torah study on the level of true exponential mobility to be engraved within us. Let us see what this type of Torah study accomplishes. The verses in Deuteronomy speak of loving God with all our hearts and all our souls. However, in that portion it does not mention to love God with all our might. To love God only with all our heart and soul is to remain stationary and just to evoke to the fullest of who we already are and what we already have. It is only in the diligent, strenuous study, concentration, and meditation of the exponential with all your might that we break out of our stationary box and leap into true exponential mobility. The verse in Isaiah states, And whereof no one had ever heard, had ever perceived by ear, no eye had ever seen a God besides you perform for him who hoped for him. Upon which the Holy Zohar comments, For he who pushes himself in words of wisdom. Allow me to explain. The word in the verse for hopes, awaits, is mechake, which the Zohar is associating with the word chachma, which means wisdom. Thus the Zohar sees the mystical interpretation as referring to he who strenuously and diligently pushes himself with all his might to understand the words of wisdom, meaning the words of Torah. What awaits for the person who does this? The mystical interpretation of the words no eye has seen besides you refers to the revelation of the essence which is beyond any form or description to be captured or grasped by the human eye of their mind. Thus, through the strenuous Torah study of with all your might, one reaches into the indescribable, infinite, omnipotent essence of God. Rabbi Shalom Dover Lubavitch, in his mystical expose of 5666, the year 5666, explains the concept. Let's see. The soul is a creation, and thus as infinite as the soul may be, it has its spiritual definitions and capacities, and especially once it descends into the human body, hosted by the human physical brain and mind. Thus the soul's faculties of intellect are limited to grasp and dissect only that which has description and form. Even the wisest of man is limited to the definition and processes of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. When one remains within the confines of what comes easily to their intellects, regardless of how wise they may be, and as far as they develop their intellects, one remains closed off from the essence, from the no eye has seen besides you. It is only through the strenuous pushing of, if in my statutes you will walk, the true pushes himself in words of wisdom, through which we dive into the deepest inner depths of the internal unification, which bring us face to face with the infinite, omnipotent essence from which extreme Parnassal wealth comes from. This is the mystical secret of the word, verse from which we learn of the concept of being a malim, strenuous, diligent Torah study. Our sages extrapolate from the verse in Job, because man is born for our mel, hard, strenuous work. That we are speaking of work of the mouth, the study of Torah. 
mystically speaking, we focus on the word born. It says over here in the verse, because man is born for Amalim. The power of birth is the physical manifestation of creating ex nihilo, something from nothing, a power that lies only in the essence of God. Neither humans nor even divine emanations can go beyond forming something from something, from the divine light or from physical objects. Creations must always start with a something. Only God can start with nothing. Thus, mystically speaking, the verse is telling us that through Amalim, strenuous study Torah, with all our might, we reach into the essence powers of creating ex nihilo, unlocking extreme fruits to our labor. Let us one more time return to the liberty of having bread of honor. The honor of our panasa, our bread, is that we build a bridge between God's blessings and ourselves. We build it. The definition of a bridge, a conduit, is that it touches both shores, that of the giver, God, and that of the recipient, physical parnasa. The bridge that God gave us is the Torah for us to study. The Torah has both shores within it, namely both dimensions of the internal unification, that of the finite expressions of parnasa and that of the extreme infinite parnasa. King David in his Psalms refers to the Torah as you enwrap yourself with light with like with light like a garment both light and garment the torah has within it both the revealed torah which is called the garment of god and the hidden torah which is the light of god these are the two shores that the torah serve as a bridge and it can do it for there is the revealed torah which defines itself with within definitions and limitations and there is the hidden Torah, which defines itself in with the infinite one, not defined in any number, nor grasped within any crown or letter. By having within it both shores, the Torah serves as a conduit to bring God's infinite extreme wealth of our Parnassa into our finite physical world of physical wealth and sustenance. With this, we can now understand the great uniqueness of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's Torah study and the gateway of Torah study that he opened up for us. Before we speak of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's level of Torah study, I want to discuss Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's level of miracles. Our sages tell the story concerning Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his students. One of the students had gone abroad and in addition to his studies got involved with business and returned to Israel a wealthy man. The other students became envious. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai took them out to a valley near Miron and said to the valley, 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 fill yourselves with gold coins. Immediately the valley began to fill itself with gold coins until it was completely filled. The reason why Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai did this is because unlike his colleagues, Rabbi Shimon said, If one plows in plowing season, sows in sowing season, and harvests in harvest season, the Torah, what will be of her? There will be no time to study Torah. When asked of how they are to survive, Rabbi Shimon responded that when Jewish people do the will of God, then their work is done by others. As the verse in Isaiah says, And strangers shall stand and pasture your sheep, and foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Rabbi Shimon's viewpoint came from his being one, quote-unquote, whose Torah study was his profession, Torah Torah and nothing else existed for him. And so it was Rabbi Shimon for this 12 years that he hid from the Roman emperor in a cave studying Torah, that a miracle occurred and a carob tree and a brook were created for, for them, for him to eat and drink. 
However, what is amazing about our story with the valley is that there are other stories in which a sage asked heaven for sustenance and a piece of gold fell from heaven. However, in our story, Rab Shimon spoke not to heaven but to the physical valley. And the gold did not come down from heaven but from the physical valley itself. This was unprecedented and Jewish mysticism explores this change of process of a miracle happening. Kabbalah and Hasidah see that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's way of performing a miracle was not by having impo heaven imposing itself upon nature, breaking through her laws. Rather, Rabbi Shimon came from a place in which the essence, omnipotence of God expressed itself simply within nature, having nature perform simply what is necessary at the moment, embodying God's omnipotence. All the other sages perform miracles by having heaven smashed through the laws of nature from above, imposing itself upon nature here below. The reason for this uniqueness, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, was precisely because Rabbi, Shimon, Rabbi Shimon's uniqueness in Torah study. Thus his teacher, the great Rabbi Kiva, aware of his disciples' uniqueness and aware that no one fully grasped the greatness of his student, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, said to him, it is enough for you that I and your Creator recognize your powers. Let us see what Rabbi Shimon's powers in Torah study are. As mentioned earlier, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was an authority of law in the Talmud, a master of mysticism in the Zohar, and a man whose Torah study was his profession, which brought this physical sustenance in a heavenly way. However, Greater than all is what we quoted earlier, that in Rabbi Shimon's Torah study there was the revelation of God as it existed in the holy temple, in the holy of holies, upon the holy ark, between the cherubim, the cherubim. Our sages teach about the revelation upon the holy ark, that it manifested itself simultaneously within space and beyond space. The verse dictates to us that the holy ark was to be two and a half cubits long and that the width of the tabernacle was to be ten cubits wide. Thus, when the holy ark was placed in the holy of holies, from the outside edges of the holy ark to the walls of the tabernacles should have been 3.75 cubits. Then we would have, we would have had 3.75 plus 2.5 plus 3.75 which equals 10 cubits. However, it wasn't so. Rather, from the outside edges of the Holy Ark to the walls of the tabernacle was five cubits each. And thus, the total measurement from wall to wall should have been twelve and a half cubits. Five plus 2.5 plus five. However, it measured only ten. Thus, the Holy Ark was in space, being precisely 2.5 cubits long, and nevertheless it did not take up space, and the tabernacle remained 10 cubits wide, besides the 2.5 cubits of the Holy Ark. The point here being that the Torah study of Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai carried within it the revelation of the essence of God, which allows for the existence of extreme infinite to manifest itself within the finite realm. This is of the revelation of what I quoted before the verse in Isaiah, No eye has seen beside you, capital Y. That is revealed through a malim, strenuous effort and diligence, Torah study, of which it is said, whose Torah study was his profession, as we will now see in our closing.
Thus we now see that the verses of our Torah portion is giving promises of extreme wealth as an outcome of extreme amalim in Torah study and mitzvah observance, which engraves within the physical the essence omnipotent, omnipotence of God, which is exponentially beyond standard Torah study and mitzvah observance, which brings extremes, extreme wealth, which is exponentially beyond standard reigns and parnasa. In closing, I want to speak of all this extremism in the most practical, practical and digestible way for each and every one of us. For starters, all of us listening to this lecture are listening for a reason. Thus I say to you, friends, you have nothing to lose by trying this for a period of six months. Additionally, you may have already tried the works of Anthony Robbins and realized that his suggestions demand a certain personality type. Yes, if one is a lion, an aggressive predator, then what he needs is just to awaken the lion within and bring him out of being docile into hunting mode. However, not all of us have the temperament of a predator lion, docile or not. However, to be able to privately roll up our sleeves and be a malim in Torah study is a focus of mind we can each train our minds to do. Each of us on our own level of with all your might. God does not say in the verse with all of might but is specifically speaking to each of it individually, telling us to use only all of our individual might. All of your might is all that the verse is asking for. However, if the definition of a malim and with all your might also means whom Torah study was his profession, this is quite impractical for most of us. We don't study Torah all day and do nothing else. The Rebbe explains that the concept of whose Torah study was his profession exists both on the quantitative and qualitative level. True, for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai it was both. However, for you and me it may manifest itself only in the qualitative level. This means that we have a job and all we can do is set aside time every day for Torah study. However, in that allotted time, Torah study becomes our only profession. There are no phone calls, no interruptions, and no outside thoughts. For this allotted daily time of Torah study, nothing else exists at all. We are fully a malim with all our might in our Torah study. Another point of the Torah study which brings certain extreme wealth is that the spiritual and the physical coexist and become one and the same, engraved within each other. What this means is that most often I find that when one sits down to study Torah, they remove their common sense practical approach of logic and don the spiritual abstract approach of logic. Then of course, when they go back to work, they shed this Torah spiritual abstract logic and engage only in what they physically, physically believe to be a common sense approach to logic. This is not the Torah study path that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai opened for us. We need to humbly, and I emphasize the word humbly, make the two approaches of logic become part of each other. Treat your Torah study like it was your business and run your business like a Torah studying individual and extreme wealth is yours for the taking. Friends, modernity offers growth and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers timeless divine solutions. Here, at the platform of the Jewish mind is where modernity meets Judaism.